You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Aaron Rubinovitz. Aaron is an adjunct professor of philosophy at Rutgers University in, I, I think it's in New Jersey, right? He is also the host of two podcasts, a philosophy uh, a philosophy podcast called Embrace the Void, and he has a podcast called Philosophers in Space. And I will link to those and to anything else that we mention or allude to over the course of this podcast, which I which it's easy to find a reference for, I will reference in the show notes. So Aaron, uh, just be relaxed. Don't worry about having to provide every reference carefully. Everything will be in the show notes later. Okay, great. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So I, I'm going to give a little bit of personal background to this, which is that um, I used to have really appalling behavior on Twitter. It has got better, gradually better. Um, but I've always been kind of reactive on that site. And I think about, it was probably whilst I was in, I think it was before I even went to India. So it was about three, two or three years ago now. Um, we had an enormous fight. And I think I blocked you, or we both blocked each mm-hmm. other or something. And I remember that I, I I don't, it's funny because I don't even remember what it was about at all. Although I'm certain it was my fault because I've since noticed that you are scrupulously polite and ca- and kind of just always calm on Twitter. So to have been able to manage to provoke a fight with you, must I must have been really, <laughs> um, done something really extremely out of line. Um, yeah, I don't think it was anything especially bad. Um, I think it was in the midst of discussing postmodernism or something along those lines that um, I, don't, I don't think it was a particularly irate conversation. Like you said, I, I do try to resist the temptation of Twitter to um, sort of get down and scrap. But I mean, I, I, I fail that as much as anyone else does. I think I don't think I'm actually that that especially good at being unprovocable on Twitter. It is a very provocable environment. It's so I'm going to do my uh, once per podcast I plug letter mm-hmm. letter wiki which I'm also involved in so I'm going to do that now because letter is is a really good place to have conversations with people where you're unlikely to get into this sort of rapid fire drive by sniping mm-hmm. um and you've been quite an enthusiastic user of letter which uh which is really makes me happy. I will link to Aaron's conversations um, in the show notes also um, about moral realism and also free will. Yeah, I really like the website. I had and I just had um, Clyde uh, Rathbone on. He's going to be on Embrace the Void this coming week, talking about the the website some more. So um, I highly recommend it as a a way to engage in 
better long form discourse. Yeah, so come over to Letter. I'll put the link in the show notes. And um, you can write letters to other people back and forth. Public, it's a it's a site for public long form letter correspondence, one on one. Nobody else can derail the conversation by liking or commenting. Mm-hmm. But you can share the conversation to Facebook and, and Twitter. And if you if you are reading an interesting conversation and you want to see if it's been discussed elsewhere, there's a little social media button and it will take you to all the places to all the places where the conversation has been publicly shared or commented mm-hmm. upon. So you can see all the Twitter shares at once, which is a nice little feature. And if you want to write but you don't have anyone to write to, then we have a letter in a bottle feature. So you can send your letter to the letter in a bottle and we will look for a correspondent for you. Or you can contact me or Jackson Edwards, my gorgeous colleague, and uh, we will send out a request to our team of epistolary, epistolary matchmakers. Yeah, and if you ever need a uh, social justice warrior or just an ethicist to argue with, I'm always (laughs) looking for more letters. (laughs) there you go Um, and I'm also very open to writing letters and I've been doing a number of a number a few interviews with authors on letter also so if you have a new book recently out and you would like to write us to write to each other about your book drop me a line drop me an email and um, we can probably make that happen Uh, most most recently I've been interviewing Thomas Chatterton Williams about his book Unlearning Race, which is my favorite book now of 2019. I'm calling it, even though it's only November. I haven't read it yet. So thank you so much, Aaron. I'm so um I have to say, I ironically our conversation is going to be about we're going to start by talking about c- civility and discourse. Mm-hmm. So I think it's doubly ironic that this began with this giant fight in which I'm sure I was very rude. I I feel like with my old Twitter, I feel like a kind of drunk person waking the next morning and thinking, what the fuck happened last Mm. night? That's how I feel about the whole kind of first two years of my (laughs) Twitter usage. Um, I was just like staggering around drunk in a bar looking for a ball. Yeah, it is an addictive substance in that kind of way. So I think the the analogy (laughs) is apt. So I kind of turned over a new leaf at the beginning of of this year. And it has been not perfect, but much better. And I'm just, I've just, uh, it kind of warms the cockles of my heart that you are so forgiving and gracious and nice about all of this and have come on the podcast. Um, I'm always so happy to you. chat, especially Lovely. with people who I maybe disagree with on a variety of things. Um, I don't think it's you know everyone's responsibility to have a conversation, but I think that I have enough training that I should be able to engage in conversations like this, and I think it can be really valuable. That's great. So we began by saying that we wanted to talk a little bit about civility, and you said that you feel that um, there is a kind of fetishization of civility, which is unhelpful. And which can mm-hmm. be weaponized against people. Um, do you, would you like to say a little bit more about what what you mean by that? What you're thinking of when you say that? 
Sure. So I see fetish. I mean, I see um, civility as like many things in, in the world, a double edged sword. Um, it seems to me that it's something that can be quite valuable and is something that in a sense we want to maintain in some ways. And then at the same time, it can be used um, as a weapon against people in ways to sort of limit their ability to engage in discourse or their ability to engage in um, social change in various kinds of ways. Um, you know, a standard uh, example of this is what's called tone policing that I think people we've all probably seen at some point in some internet forum where, you know, people are disagreeing and one of them is uh, emotional or um, cares passionately about what they're talking about. And the other person sort of says, you know, I'm not willing to engage with this or engage with you on this until you sort of engage with me in just the right kind of tone of voice or something like that. Um, and that can be, you know, it's a, like, here's the thing, right? Like the right, reason I put it as a double-edged sword is because like, obviously on the other side of that, certain levels of respect towards the other person are often essential for functional communication. Um, but that I think that that, that functionality can often be <clears throat> used as a, a cover to avoid actually engaging with the issue at all. Mm. I mean, on the other side, it's it's scary when the person is very, is extremely emotional. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I say that as somebody who is hyper emotional myself, mm -hmm. which is why I actually mostly, um, although I do drive by snipings on Twitter still, I mostly avoid serious conversations that involve disagreement. Because I, I feel like I'm not, I'm not, if I really disagree strongly and I feel it's important that the other side of the case be put, I am not a good person to put the other side of the case. Uh, in writing, maybe, but directly, directly confronting the person, no. I'm going to get emotional and carried away and um, maybe even rude, and it's going to be counterproductive. Yeah. So I always feel don't make me your spokesperson. I'm the worst person to be there. Be that spokesperson. And I don't think there's anything wrong with you as an individual saying you don't want to do that and that you get you feel like you get worked up in a way that isn't functional. Um I what I want to mm. sort of push back on is the idea that like any form of getting worked up is a dysfunctional form, which I think you wouldn't mm. necessarily want to agree either and that like you know, there are times where people can be justifiably angry and the expression of that anger can bring with it, I think, social value and bring with it information like, um, you know, when you express anger about an injustice, you can bring light to that injustice. And sometimes, you know, purely calmly describing the details of the injustice is not quite enough. So there can be value, I think, in, in our discourse for these kind of emotionally expressive and you know this gets at the like the larger questions about what are the point of speech acts broadly speaking like are we engaging in these discourses because we're trying to change each other's minds because we're trying to change the minds of people watching this are we doing it because we think it's important even if nobody's minds are changed depending on how you answer that question i think there can be more or less value for the levels of emotional expression um and that you know, and then that also that like, 
what gets caught up when we talk about civility can sometimes be things like whether or not I'm allowed to call someone like Stephen Miller a racist, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think describing Stephen Miller as a racist is a statement of fact, right? Some would consider it a slur and incivil and inappropriate in that kind of way. Whereas I would argue that if you don't highlight his white supremacy, you don't fully understand his position. And so you don't fully understand his behavior. And so there can be this concern that the value of civility starts to swamp out other kind of values like honesty. And it's interesting because I think oftentimes people who are pro-civility are also people who are like pro-honesty, right? They don't want to have their words silenced in certain kinds of ways. And I feel like there can be kind of a tension between those things that they're they're not always fully acknowledging. But I think it's just a real problem that we, we face when we're trying to communicate honestly with each other. I think there's there's two things that can happen. And and one is a kind of is a double standard that mm-hmm. If I also believe the person is a racist, I'm fine with you saying it. And But if I don't believe that, I think that's a slur. And of course, mm-hmm. that may be true. So when you call someone a racist, it can be accurate, um, which I think it probably is in Stephen Miller's case. And I'm only saying probably because I've not been following this at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read the email dump and I haven't paid any, I haven't paid attention to that story because the big, big story here is uh, the the crisis in Bolivia. Mm, sure. So I haven't been paying as much attention over the past couple of weeks to U.S. news. Um, well, certainly over the last week. But I, I think that um, on the one hand, there's this natural kind of difference of opinion and liability to give people we feel are on our team the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. whereas other people are are. are labeled very quickly. But I do also come across people who have just, um, because labels do also get flung around in an um, in an unconscionable way as slurs. I, I'm coming across people on Twitter who really frustrate me because they seem to think that because the word is sometimes used inaccurately, the thing no longer exists. Right. They're like, oh, racist and white supremacist. Those are just kind of rude words that people use to, to, to um, when they don't like somebody, which, mm-hmm. of course, is some people do use them that way. But that doesn't mean to say that ra- there aren't racists, etc. Um, I usually use I I and I use the word um, fascist quite often, mm. and. Um, um, really frequently told that that this is first of all historically inaccurate because fascist needs to mean, <laughs> you know, a German or Italian from the 1930s and a member right. of the Nazi Party, um, or that I'm just exaggerating and using it as a slur. And uh, so I wrote an article um, which I'll which I'll link to, explaining exactly what I mean because I think fascism is quite a specific thing. And I prefer that word to to um, because I'm often also talking about Hindu ethno nationalists. So um, I like to have a blanket term for this kind of nostalgic blood and soil um, racial mystique mm-hmm. ideology um, that 
really origin that originated in the 30s or a little before the 30s uh, and of which I think of I think of Nazism and Italian fascism as being um, manifestations of this thing but the thing itself is is more perennial yeah and it's important to be able to to put a name to that and while there can be difficulties in drawing the boundaries and saying who absolutely falls within that category versus not that doesn't necessarily mean that these categories aren't very important and so you know the pro the downside right the the bad the bad blade of civility is that it can prevent us from being honest about our our naming of things out in the world because we are afraid to um, offend, right? We are afraid to hurt other people. And it's it can be frustrating, I find, because I, I get worried that sometimes, I mean, it, it feels sometimes that like the often, as it often goes, right, the people who clamor the most for this are also like the ones who will say, well, other people take offense too easily, but I'm I'm resistant to offense or something like that. And it, it goes back to what you were saying about how like we can often have blind spots for our own side or for ourselves, where we let ourselves off the hook for engaging in you know behavior that we wouldn't that we would hold people to account for much worse. Um, so, you know, I think, and here's another factor in all of this, which is like civility is something that comes in, in on some level from privilege, right? I can be infinitely civil in my ethical debates about almost anything because part of it is that like i'm almost never going to be the one at risk if those ethical debates don't go the way that they need to go for certain people whereas other people's really um aren't i mean aren't you jewish uh, i mean my name is jewish but like i don't i don't identify as jewish and like i guess i don't i don't strongly identify as someone at risk in any kind of way um and i think so so what i, what I think is there's a reasonable sense to me. So we get into, you know, debates about debates in philosophy and we get into like, should we, should <laughs> we have a debate about, you know, is homosexuality immoral, right? That's an ethical question and it can be valuable to tease out the ethical arguments on either side. But in having that debate, I think we have to also be sensitive that like there are individuals in the world now and throughout all of history who've suffered because people thought sort of one way about that debate rather than the other. And so having a purely bloodless, you know, debate about the nature of, of homosexuality without talking about those very emotionally uh, laden impacts seems to me to be sort of potentially problematic. So that can be another way in which I think civility forces us to ignore certain important pieces of you know puzzle. i i think i might f have the opposite sensation about this so i think that being able to be frank is the real sign of is a real sign of privilege um if you are hmm. um a lot of people have to be civil because otherwise they will lose their jobs um, That's totally true. You know, they will Absolutely. lose right. their their homes and positions and and whatever. So I feel like being able to speak really frankly is always a sign that you have a certain degree of privilege. You live in a country where you have free speech uh, protections, for example. So that's already. I would right. call it luck. I'm not fond of the word privilege, but I'll use privilege 
um, because it's it's your language and sure. it's I'm happy it's with fine. Luck, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I much prefer to talk about moral luck. We can totally go that direction. Yeah, I, I mean, um, we both agree. Um, and I think right before this podcast, um, the Free Will podcast will come out. I think we both agree that it's all luck all the way down. Um, I'm yeah, a radical totally. non-believer in free and, will. And so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and you make a good point. And let me just let me, well, let me say I think the two things that we are saying are actually compatible. That like privilege allows for the control of discourse, which means both being able to be frank when you want to be, and being able to prevent other people from being frank when you don't want them to be. Right. That seems like those are the two sides of that power coin. Right. Um, I mean, I I often hear this kind of false false sort of idea or suggestion. Um, from the kind of IDW adjacent types, um, into which group I also, mm -hmm. I also would kind of loosely place myself. That's probably my mimetic tribe. I think that's um, but I often yeah. hear this from my like, what should I call them? Um, colleagues <laughs> in that in that like uh -huh. your, my your cohort, cohort. <laughs> my mimetic cohort. Um, I often hear uh -huh. that there's kind of hinting that somehow the right are better about free speech. And um, right. no, I think uh, anti-free speech stuff is authoritarianism and authoritarianism can come from the right. It can come from the left. Um, you know, Modi is just as much of an authoritarian as, say, Maduro. Um, and in both cases, yeah. the first thing to go is free speech. It's always like a... Defending mm -hmm. free speech is like a game of whack-a-mole. It's, you know, whenever people have the power to try to prevent people from saying things they don't want them to say, um, they tend to go ahead mm -hmm. and try and do that. So, so why do you think then, I'm curious, uh, since you are adjacent, um, why do you feel like <laughs> intellectual dark it's become web? The worst, oh. It's become the worst insult. It's like worse than fascist or anything else. It's adjacent. <laughs> well, we, we can talk about um, guilt by association because, again, I think it's another double-edged sword. And, you know, all we do in philosophy is juggle double-edged swords. Um, but, like, I'm curious, first of all, why you think that intellectual dark web folks do say things like the right is better about this uh, free speech or, or various some other do, things. I think do. I, I do feel like that's awesome. Yeah, some do. Okay. Um, I think because a lot of them are academics or former academics or academic adjacent. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. so um, that is an area in the US, certainly, and in the UK also, which is very left-wing dominated. Um, mm hmm and I do think it's inevitable. I think that academe will always be dominated by leftists. Um, that that is a probably a psychological personality thing that leftists are more open mm. um, than conservatives, and so more likely to be in to and and also less um, less. Uh, clearly focused on economic practicalities. And so I think we're always going to outnumber the right in academe. But I, there's, a, there's a sensation that, that there's been a real diminishing of, of free speech on campus. And that, I think, because they are in that milieu, their sensation right. is uh, the devil they don't know might be kinder. 
Um, and I, I, uh-huh. I strongly disagree because I also have a friend who is at a right-wing Christian college. And she had to, you know, sign a thing saying that she wasn't an atheist and there are certain topics she's not allowed to touch. Uh-huh. So as soon as the right is running their college, they do exactly the same kind of bullshit. I, yeah, um, right. It's just that... Uh, or worse, I would, I would personally argue, but yes, I, I agree yeah, that like... in this case, so, worse. So it's like kind I, of availability bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that that is probably why. And I'm less inclined to say that because um, because I'm I'm half Indian, and um, mm-hmm. so I'm very I'm very aware of right wing um, right wing infractions against free speech because uh, India does right. not have does not have um, very robust free speech protections, and it's the right who are suppressing inconvenient speech. Yeah, I so I mean, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here, right? Like, I, I mean, I want to just throw, I guess, a few flags around and say, um, I don't think the left has abandoned free speech in a large way. I think that, like, the concerns about the dangers to free expression are sort of largely overstated. Um, and I also, I'm I'm not as convinced that the, the current asymmetry in academia is sort of an unavoidable product of you know, the the division of our personalities or something like that. There was a time when there were a lot more conservatives in academia. And I think the reasons for the current asymmetries are very complex and involve like things like self-selecting. They involve a current political climate in America that involved that that, that included the right being actively anti um information for sort of specific political reasons but I, I like i don't necessarily think that conservatives make bad intellectuals or can't be you know smart or engage in academia or anything like that and i would and i would actually prefer that there were more conservative individuals in academia for no other reason than to assuage the fears that individuals have that like mm. because mm. there aren't more of them like there's this huge problem um, mm. Whether or not that actually improves the quality of the the science or whatever they're doing, I think is a separate question. But, um, you know, I think, well, if nothing else, like I think representation matters. And I think that's true also for conservative students to be able to see conservative representation. And, and like I also just do think that there are still quite a few conservatives in academia who, um, you know, I, and, and here, so like getting back to our civility discussion, right? What do we talk? What do we mean when we say sort of silencing of speech, right? Um, you know, no longer can professors tell their female students, well, you know, women just aren't quite smart enough to do philosophy. So I think maybe you should consider a different major or something like that. And it, like, is that a limiting of their speech? Yes. Is it a good thing? Absolutely. And like, I'm all for some kinds of limiting of speech in that way. And, and then maybe that's, you know, enforcing civility on that front. But I think that's, that's valuable for people to be able to engage in these environments. Mm. Hmm, that's a good question. Would I be against that limit stopping them from saying that? I, I I need to think about that. I would I would be okay with letting the professor say that and then just laughing at him. Um, I mean, I mean that makes me really really nervous for the student. Like a student can't <laughs> laugh at a tenured professor right. like that, right? There's a huge power Why imbalance not? there because um, because because they can ruin their career in a very severe way, and like you know, you mean a graduate student's career? Yeah, because absolutely. an undergraduate, I don't. An undergraduate, I don't think so. Um, 
I guess if, if that is your if that person is your mentor. Or just like, you know, I want to do philosophy and you just crushed my jokes and dreams of doing philosophy and now I don't do it anymore. Mm, like that's mm, mm, like, mm. why would we want to allow people to discourage someone like that in, in such a, a sort of incredibly inappropriate way, it seems like. I don't want people to discourage uh, to discourage students like that in an inappropriate way. Mm -hmm. My problem always is, um, and you're going to say this is a slippery slope argument, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and slippery slope arguments are very dodgy. Mm -hmm. um, but my problem always is, where are we drawing the line? So this is a thing where we obviously cross one side of the line of what we find desirable. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other side of the line is... Um, a friend of mine who is doing research in um, his his research is in um, evolutionary psychology, mm -hmm. and his and his research is on sex differences. Mm -hmm. And he is just he he really does not feel that he can ever talk frankly. He has to be incredibly careful as to what he says all of the time, and. It's he's not even it's not even political what he does. It's biology. Mm -hmm. um, there's no there's no suggestion that any woman is less capable of doing anything else. Um, and he is nevertheless kind of he's uh, smeared interestingly as being a white supremacist. And I don't think he has ever mentioned or talked about race in any way. But it's it's. It's like a catch-all. I, well, I'd have to know who it um, was to be able to adjudicate on that particular point. But. Right, <laughs> of course. But I'm, I, um, of course, I, and I will. Um, I'm. I, I'll talk to you about it later. But I don't actually want to say his name right now in public. But I think that there is. I feel there is a chilling impact on discourse. I feel there must be because my. Um, Many of my friends who are still academics, who I have conversation with, um, even with them, I feel very cautious about talking about anything political. I'm extremely cautious. And it's that's fine because I'm not I'm not in academe, but would I survive academe if I were in academe now? I don't I don't know. And I do know that. You know, recently, someone who is teaching French literature was telling me right now he's about to be teaching um, La Close, Les Liaisons Dangereuses, and he said that has rape and attempted rape in it and things. And he's he's just very worried that some some remark said in the course of the seminar will will get him in trouble. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I think the answer to these kind of questions is it's very complicated, and I am sympathetic to your friends. I'm, I'm, I mean, I do believe that society by nature produces a chilling effect, right? As soon as we step right. out of the state yeah. of nature and into any kind of social contract, like I've said before, we are, you know, we are being, we are being civil. We are being limited. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not going after your intellectual dark web adjacent friends quite as heavily <laughs> as I might in a different situation or something, right? Like I'm trying to be respectful of not blowing up your spot. Um, and like, here, here's my, my feeling on impossible conversations, quote unquote, right? I think, it's, I think all conversations, well, almost all conversations, uh, especially about empirical things, are, are, should be 
open for debate, but I don't think you should just be sort of willy nilly debating them in any moment at any time with anyone. Like I think, um, you know, in my philosophy classes, right. When I teach intro to ethics, I have an ep- you know, a class about pornography um, and I've had, you know, one or two students who've chosen not to participate in that class, even though I don't like show hardcore pornography, but I show advertisements that are for all intents and purposes, pornographic. Um, you know, I, I think there is a value in having controversial conversations about stuff like that. But I think the healthy thing to do for people is to have those in context where, look, it's clear we're going to have a conversation about, you know, whether slavery is actually good or not, but we're going to do that within this very specialized context where we are all clearly stipulating none of us are really pro-slavery, right? And that, like, in no way are we going to try to, like, undervalue the humanity of specific individuals as a result of this. Um, so, like, I I value that in an academic setting. And then the flip side of that is I think that people who value those kind of debates need to be a lot more honest about the risks of those debates as sort of, you know, ideological viruses in a sense. And that, that like, if they are diluted and spread amongst, you know, individuals who aren't putting it in that specialized context can cause a lot of harm to real people. Um, and I, I, you know, I think we can have that sophisticated view. It doesn't have to be so all or nothing for speech. I feel like I see this a lot where it's like, you know, either anyone can say anything in any situation, including, you know, a teacher saying, you know, you're far too sexy a woman to be doing philosophy or something like that. You need to go do something like so, some really right. grossly inappropriate I, I, behavior. I, yeah, like we I can't limit heard that, that kind right? of stuff when I was an undergraduate um, in the pre-woke era. Right. And that, <laughs> well, that's it's horrible. horrible. But it was also <laughs> like, um, well, it was it was horrible and also kind of no big deal. Um, I don't I mean, I don't want to minimize for anybody else, though. Sure. I mean, I appreciate that you you feel like you've dealt with it and things like that. But I think, you know, I think it's important to be able to say it, things are better now because people can't say certain things, even if we want to also be able to debate in an academic setting, do women have lower IQs or something like that? Right. I think that should be perfectly fine. And I don't feel at all, I don't see why I should feel personally threatened by such a debate or feel like Mm -hmm. this is somehow invalidating my humanity. Um, After all, as you say, we have these, we rehash these kinds of debates all the time. Those of us who have studied history um, mm-hmm. and um, historical literature and things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I taught a course when I was still an academic. I taught a senior seminar um, in the queer studies department. So I was in a in a grievance studies department, as it were, back, back then. Mm-hmm. We read all kinds of stuff. Uh, Freud on homosexuality, Havelock Ellis, the idea of inverts, we read about the Radcliffe Hall trial. Um, we read uh, all kinds of um, intensely um, homophobic stuff mm-hmm. and crazy theories and ideas, etc. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel like anybody felt affected in any bad way by them. And nor did I feel any need to sort of say, even say, I don't agree with them. I was just like. This is interesting. Let's look at what the crazy ideas that people had and how their ideas have shifted over time, etc. I mean, I 
is it possible that part of that is because you're not homosexual and so it didn't it wasn't personally attacking towards you, especially, you know, like if you were living, uh, you know, hidden as a homosexual, maybe you would have had a much different experience of that kind of material? I don't think so. I mean, most of the students who took my course, or many of the students, um, told me they were gay. Um, Mm -hmm. And they took the course for that reason. And actually, towards the end of my time in academia, I also had students who took the course because their parents were gay. Which, which was a, mm. I thought was a great uh, development. So, so this sort of gets at the question of like canceling, like, like canceling certain texts, right? Like mm-hmm. an ethical question of should we be allowed to still read homosexual author, homophobic authors or something like that? Yeah, and we, we I, should. I, I lean on the side of yes. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. but again, I think there's nothing wrong with contextualizing it, right? There's nothing wrong with saying it doesn't ruin the fun of H.P. Lovecraft to say, look, H.P. Lovecraft was unbelievably racist even for his time and it like if you don't understand hp lovecraft's racism you don't understand like what is going on in his weird fiction so i want to go back to the tone policing idea um because i i find the whole tone policing thing extremely annoying um and a really so i think that there are there's a a confusion which i i feel like happens with a social justice left very frequently with some, I'm going to say some people on the social justice left, because I don't consider it to be a monolith. You know, there are social justice leftists who I respect. And there are also people in my own kind of camp, quote unquote, who I don't respect very much, to be honest. So it depends on the individual. But my sensation is there's often this confusion between levels, between the societal and the individual level, and what's appropriate for both. So um, the classic example of this, uh, for me, um, you might disagree, but let's not get too into the weeds on it. But the classic example for me is the whole um, idea of white privilege, that it's one thing to say white or white presenting people um, are more privileged on average in society. And to look at a person who has pale skin and immediately say, you are privileged. Those are those are two, to me, two different things. Because one is uh, one is one is statistical analysis, society wide, and the other is guessing things about a specific person who you don't know. Um, and, mm-hmm. and the second one also often kind of spills over into this kind of collective blame. I see this happening happening a lot, that things that should be societal analyses are being used to attack individuals. And I have the same feeling um, about the tone policing, in a sense, that I think that... Uh, when you're doing activism, then you do want to shock people. You don't, I mean, there's a kind of, maybe there's a fine line to be, to draw in certain cases, I don't know, between alienating people and making them aware of something. But in general, activists want you to, they want to shock you out of your complacency. Uh, uh, to give an example that I saw in my recent Twitter newsfeed, um, which some people from my my team, I felt had a really strange response to, um, it was Mona 
El Tawe, uh, I don't know how to pronounce her name, uh, Mona El Tawe, um, who who is a um, who is a, a a liberal Muslim campaigner, and she's she was on a talk show, and this kind of confu- level of confu- confusion of levels was happening, both in what she said and in people's responses to it for me. So she said. I love being on Twitter. I really enjoy going on Twitter and telling people to fuck off. Um, and she said, I really, I I love just um, responding to people's comments and just telling them all to fuck off. And she said, if uh, she said in the past, any anyone who is an ex-Muslim should fuck right off out of here. Uh, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't be an ex-Muslim if you want to fight for more liberalization of Islam. You have to do it from within Islam. Um, she has this kind of so she has this very combative stance towards individuals. Um, some of them really people who are kind of on her side. Um, and she said she felt very similar doing that to this activist, and the activist is a woman who was uh, convicted um, by Idi Amin, and who was um, who made this video where she bared her breasts and she wiggled, jiggled her breasts, and she shouted "fuck you" three times to to Idi Amin, and she went to prison for life. So. The, um, a lot of people on my feed were sort of responding to the mm-hmm. anti Idi Amin activists as if she had done something terribly impolite. Whereas this is clearly, this is activists using shock value to bring attention to their causes. And I think that is a we- an, an important weapon in your arsenal as an activist. You want to make people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And you want to draw attention because you need to draw attention to your cause. And I think that's completely different from telling ex-Muslims to fuck off on Twitter. And I feel that that confusion was, was I, I felt that those two things were really confused in both people's responses to what Mona said and in what she herself said. Okay. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, I don't know if that was a very convoluted way of putting it. I, I don't know if it well, well, let me say first helps. something about the ecological fallacy, and then I can say something about protesting. Um, so so what you're describing there is, as, well, as I understand it, the ecological fallacy, the treating of a group as, you know, an individual as an indicative of a group dynamic in some kind of way, right? If, you know, if I say certain groups have a higher IQ, it doesn't necessarily mean that every individual within that group has a higher IQ or something like that. This is a, you're right, this is something that is a common right. problem. And it's it's, right. a, it's a problem because this is this is a very complicated, these are very complicated issues on an empirical level. And a lot of folks in the discourse get them wrong in a variety of kinds of ways. So, um, you know, those facts are sometimes used to, you know, justify, so for example, that like there aren't a lot of female coders. Right. And so they'll say, you know, we can infer from large, you know, dynamics between men and women or something that this is just a matter of preference and and personality or something like that. And it's more likely that that's the issue than systemic problems or something. So, like, this is a really important part of the discourse. Um, I, I, I do think that people on all sides 
uh, tend to get this wrong and also on all sides play fast and loose with using those kind of inferences when they assist, you know, assist their particular argument and sort of ignoring them when they don't. But mm-hmm. all that being said, I don't necessarily agree that if I, you know, if, if we say white people are privileged or so or have, have more luck, right, um, that we can't say we can't then infer that for specific individual white people they that we, i think i think we can infer that they do have certain kinds of consistent forms of luck does it mean that they are overall lucky or privileged or something like that no not this not necessarily but that's that's the that's the key point right on a on, on a specific axis they they are consistently right like they consistently have to deal less with well so so and again mm, it, it, it depends, can be very complicated. depends where you are yeah right. depends also so again, where you are Right, it's a very con- it can be very context sensitive in those kind of ways too. So I agree, I agree with you on that. And then, like, I mean, when I when we talk about things like luck in this way, I think what's important to understand is that we're not saying white people are bad people or something like that. And I think that's often what folks in the in, in, in sort of your tribe hear is that like saying someone has privilege is again a fault against them in some kind of way it's like saying oh you just got Mm. there because you're lucky and it's that just because part that i think they really pick up on the most um and that's that's Mm. that's a larger problem and i do i do hear that you know i do hear that um and i also it's it's this kind of this perception of this fetishization of skin color I really dislike mm-hmm. because it's a it's really erases people's backgrounds. There's the specificity of their backgrounds. Yeah, I mean we're we're always in a tension between the general and the specific in this kind of way. Um and it's hard because I think it's also cultural. In America, skin color makes a big difference. It may be that in certain places it makes less of a difference, but I I think you know, it, it, we can't, or it makes a difference in the other, in the opposite direction. Also, I mean, if you are a twenty-five-year-old white woman in Delhi, it is not having white skin is not an advantage to you. Sure, but that can be perfectly compatible with saying that, like, being the white woman in America is an advantage to you, right? Like that; those both of those claims seem to me objectively true. Um, and, and there could be ways in which it gets more complicated, right? If you're a white person in China or something like that, that may sort of weirdly give you an advantage in that you're sort of unique or standing out in some kinds of ways. So, you know, I think when people say that these things are real, we're not saying there's easy, simple accounts of how they work. It just seems that it's it's false to ignore, for example, that being a person of color in New York during stop and frisk meant that you were vastly more likely to be a target of stop and frisk. Um, and that's just a fact. And like, I, we don't want it to be that way. We, we want to get to a world where skin color doesn't matter, but it, we can't get there by just pretending that we're already there, right? We have to address the ways in which we're not there in order to, and that's, this is where the protest side comes in, right? Because, pro, you know, I love teaching letter from a Birmingham jail um, because MLK wrestles with the really hard questions of like, you know, when is it okay to cause harm to cause good? Because that's what protesting is. There's no protest that causes zero harm and still produces good. It's just a question of what is the level of harm that is acceptable. Even nonviolent protest is meant to, you know, disrupt the current. To right. disrupt. And the disruption yeah, is important yeah. because if you don't raise the stakes of the social conflict enough that it brings people to the table, you can't get to a resolution. And that's the goal of 
that kind of work. So it's, it is, it's, again, it's, there's no simple explanation for, oh, here's the easy, safe way to protest versus the, you know, the harmful, dangerous way to protest. It is, again, very complicated. Like, if you look at Hong Kong right now, I have a hard time being super critical of the protests there, even when they are, in some cases, violent. So, like, we often, I think, like to talk about, oh, well, at least one side hasn't turned to violence or something like that, which obscures the complexity of when it might be justified to use violence in certain situations. Mm, I kind of think it's never justified to use violence. Ever? Like literally ever? In in protests, I think in self-defense. Um, but as a, I think, property damage I can go with. Um, but violence mm-hmm. to civilians, to uh, to kind of random people, random civilians, I've mm-hmm. got to say no. Yeah, I, w- I would be largely against the use of um, terrorist behavior towards actual individuals. I think partly because it's not going to produce the desired sort of result. Um, I just, you know, my my job as an ethicist is really mostly. It's also the- wrong to those individuals. Um, sure, but so is you know blocking traffic. It's just a le- what level of wrong are we willing to accept yeah. towards individuals? Yeah. right. I'm gonna. I'm. I would say it's a bright line that blocking traffic and having a more inconvenient journey to work or whatever it might be is mm-hmm. is is very different from being shot by a pellet gun and losing an eye. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I know absolutely. that you agree, but I would yeah. place the bright line at violence. Yeah, I mean, I tend I tend to think that like violence is not not the right solution in a lot of cases. I just I, I think it's this goes back to our discussion of fetishizing speech. There's a there's a view that I think is prevalent in certain sectors that I think is is a little bit naive, which says you know enough of the right kind of speech will resolve these hard problems. And I like to hope that that can happen. You know, I, I'm never going to stop talking to try to help change people's minds about things. But I'm also very skeptical about how effective discourse actually is, and how. And so that's why I think, you know, I'm a little skeptical of the civility narrative because I think it it seeks to maintain stability in the status quo, even when the stability and status quo can be built on pretty abhorrent situations and when incivility and and you know civil unrest could potentially bring about a better outcome Hmm. you see i think that so um we're talking at two levels again kind of mass mass actions Mm -hmm. um and individual interactions um and i think that in individual interactions I feel like um, whenever I leave civility behind, it, there's a certain there's certain pleasure in it, and maybe it has some effects on kind of bystanders. And I feel the pool of, of signaling really, really strongly. You know, if I have somebody, if someone comes into my Twitter mentions who is doing any kind of, I think of it more generally as kind of race fetishization, like white nationalists, Hindu ethno-nationalists who I tussle with a lot, or any anyone or even you know black power supremacist types there're not that many of them but they also exist whatever type of person it is i feel instantly i've got to like make my mark and tell them they're an asshole and block them but i don't is does that really do anything except for a signal to my people that i am you know i'm a good person um, I suspect that it's just performative narcissism, and I really hate to say that, 
But I feel that pull very strongly, and I suspect that those are my motivations. Um, not that I think there's anything particularly wrong with trying to keep your your place in your tribe. Not that I think there's anything wrong with this kind mm-hmm. of signaling. Um, I just think it doesn't in itself do very much. So, I mean, I would at least add, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to argue with you that, that it solves social ills in some way, mm. but it does allow you as an individual to assert some autonomy over your experience within that environment. Sure. And that like, sure. f- right, if, you're, if you experience that harassment on a regular basis, it gives you a sense of control, which can be valuable. Sure. it it uh, Sure. And I think everybody should be able to mute, block, or be rude to whoever they wish on Twitter and actually say whatever they like. But I... I think that in order to solve the difficult problems we've got to we have we have got to have civil conversations that they won't be solved by this kind of this kind of conflict that the difficult con- that the really difficult questions are mostly quite complex questions and mm-hmm. the ones that are more kind of emotional knee jerk things what I think of more emotional knee-jerk things, some of those questions can also really be solved by um, civil interaction. So people's attitudes, for example, towards homosexuality have changed enormously over my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And when you ask people what changed their minds, it was almost always exposure, personal exposure. Um, I mean, which is not necessarily the same thing as civil discourse, though. Like, it was it wasn't them hearing a debate about homosexuality that changed their mind. It was them knowing a person who was gay that changed their mind, or knowing about the story of someone who's gay. Which you know gets to the like postmodernist kind of take of like we need more of these standpoint stories to change minds and less of pure rational arguments. Well, um, I don't know that. I, I don't think pure rational arguments are very effective, pure purely rational mm-hmm. arguments. Um, mm-hmm. I th- but I do think that, um, so I think that emotional appeals are helpful. Yeah, I definitely do think that. That's not what I understand by standpoint epistemology, but um, I don't want to get into, the, into those no, weeds. No, we don't really, really, those, those weeds right. are full of ticks, and I don't want to get... Right. Lyme disease going in there, um, but but it does I, it does play to our larger question that like there are sources of knowledge that are important that maybe get tamped down in certain kinds of overly civilized discourse. Um, maybe yeah, and I do think that emotional honesty is extremely extremely important, and people's personal stories are extremely important, and it's one of the things that I dislike. In social justice, is when things are are constantly depicted as group, as as uh, on when people are constantly talking about the group level and about mm-hmm. statistics, um, because I think personal stories are more more valuable for changing minds, and personal acquaintances more valuable for changing minds. But I do also huh. think that the kind of so. One thing that I want to make sure we don't forget to touch on, um, which we talked about briefly in our Twitter conversation, uh, Mm -hmm. in our DMs on Twitter, is that I don't, um, I think there is a kind of cheap defense of free speech 
Well, I know we mm-hmm. both agree on this. There's a weak defense of free speech, which is this kind of idea that you put something out into the marketplace for ideas and you debate it civilly and the right answer will emerge. And, um, um, you know, that meanwhile, speech will do no harm. It will just expose things and make it clear what the correct answer is. Um, you can probably put this more eloquently than I can. You know what I mean. Um, am I am I making sense in the way I'm explaining yeah. that? Well, yeah, that like, so th- this goes back to, I think, Mill, who I do love and who I teach regularly. And I, I think he was sometimes a little overly optimistic about how you could have perfectly unfettered marketplace of ideas, free speech, and that would produce the best results in a in a kind of uh you know parieto ultimo kind of way in the sense that like everyone is benefited from this and no one is substantially harmed because you know it's just speech it's not directly harming people in severe ways and the benefits of letting everyone have it out um is is so great that like there's very negligible cost and i think the reality is that the costs are less negligible than we want to than than we want them to be, and it may be the case that we should still ultimately lean towards a, a fairly open marketplace of ideas. But I do think we have to do that with an acknowledgement of the costs and with some work towards limiting the costs on, especially on you know the people who are sort of most vulnerable um, and so can be harmed the most by that speech. So I think this weak defense of free speech is rather unconvincing, that speech can be very harmful, very hurtful, um, harmful in all kinds of, of, in many very extreme ways. But I think that in the long run, um, I feel that everything that we are able to all of the knowledge that we are able to acquire, all of the all of the progress that we've been able to make um, as a species, we have made that through free speech. Uh, without free speech, that would not have been possible. So I feel that the trade-offs are enormous. Um, I mean, the trade-offs of any kind of freedom are big, but the trade-offs of free speech are probably the costliest of all. But at the same time, it's also the bedrock of all other values. So I think that you have to take a very long-term view of it. So in the short and even medium term, the results can be harmful. But the long t- in the long term, it is worth it. I mean, I'm sympathetic to that as a liberal. Um, and I think a lot, I think most, for the most part, I think folks in my tribe do agree with that fundamental principle that like, the more free speech that we can have, the better. It's just what, you know, when do you hit something that's bad enough that you might want to limit it is where, where the real argument I think comes up. I mean, certainly there are people in the world like who think that unfettered free speech is just full stop bad that like, you know, you could argue that the, the current Chinese government, for example, thinks that less free speech is good. And on some metrics, you know, you can argue that that is true, right? If you're talking about social cohesion in some context right you could say that like limiting um disturbing viewpoints does maintain that maybe not maybe not independent you know forever but um but like i i agree with you that i think 
robust debate is a good thing. Um, I just, I, I think that people who are opposed to this stuff, they get labeled as being opposed to that ideal rather than being just more, you know, in a sense, more cynical about the implications of that or more critical about um, the way that that is implemented in some contexts. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm really aware of how bad the trade-offs can be. Um, to give a, a sort of somewhat, um, to give one example, I'm not sure how to characterize this example, actually, but a few years ago, actually, just before I went to, just before, whilst I was still here in Buenos Aires, before I went to India, so I guess about four years ago, um, there was a WhatsApp that went viral um, in India, and it showed a video of two two or three men, I think three men, driving into a village on motorcycles and abducting children. Hmm. And um, up in, probably in Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, up there in the north, um, India is, the rule of thumb in India is the further south you go, the more liberal. Um, so up in one of the northern provinces, these guys rode into these three guys rode into town on motorbikes and the people in the village thought that they were the three guys from the video and they killed them hmm. and it turned out that the video was a safety demonstration filmed in Pakistan um and the the guys the guys in the video were actors and it was about how to prevent how to keep your children safe and and prevent child abduction right but this video in a cropped form had gone viral all over Indian WhatsApp and had begun to accrete um, commentary and messages. And then the Hindi text said, watch out for these three guys who have been riding around abducting, mm -hmm. raping and murdering children. Mm -hmm. And these guys who came into town who bore a superficial resemblance to the guys on this grainy video were were killed by the mob. Um, so that's the Indian government's um, immediate response was, we need to limit the number of WhatsApp you can, app forwards you can send. So I think there's like a limit now of 20 WhatsApp forwards that you can send per day or something. I'm not sure what it is. And in a sense, it's good because any, as anyone, any, any Indian person will tell you WhatsApp groups in India, especially WhatsApp family groups, can be an absolute curse. Mm. And people will send the most, at best, they will send just kind of, you know, dad jokes and, and boomer memes. But um, at worst, it's really extraordinary disinformation, uh, quackery, um, racist kind of rumors, you know, uh, all, all kinds of things that are incredibly damaging um, and uh, to anybody who who reads and believes them. You know, rumors about how Muslims are behaving or whatever, hate-filled, hate hate-stirring rumors, um, cures for uh, telling you not to take chemotherapy because it's it's poisonous and instead to um, instead to 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 drink turmeric water or something. Right. Um, and all of that is 
all of that is free speech. But it's still, it's, we have got to, and just saying you can send fewer WhatsApps is not really a good way of dealing with that. And that we have to, we have to find a way to counter that stuff, but without saying people are not allowed to say things. Um, and the Indian government's general response has been to just curtail free speech full stop, to just say, um, well, you can't say anything that might be hurtful to a particular community. And they interpret that to also mean you can't criticize religion. You can't criticize people for, um, um, you can't criticize specific Hindu practices, which are actually quite um damaging and horrible casteist practices because that's offense against a religious group. Um, so I'm I'm kind of well aware of how dangerous speech can be, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean I think we're all sort of keenly aware in the age of social media that Facebook is used to commit mass genocides, for example. So um and I, I think as, as sympathetic as I am to your desire for there to be a, a third option besides, you know, censorship or just letting, you know, things run their course, I'm not sure that there is one. And I think that... No, I what, no only on an individual level. I don't think there's any state, there's any way, state way of dealing with this, uh, any governmental way. Well, well, so I mean... Any way that I would approve of. Um, I mean, take Facebook, for example, right? It seems to me that Facebook is in a no-win situation with what they're going to limit in terms of content on their website. Um, It is not a good choice for them to limit nothing, but as soon as they start limiting anything, they run into severe problems of how to distinguish between, you know, what kinds of misinformation are too far to the extreme, what kinds of things are so factually inaccurate as to be removed. And I, I don't think that I don't think we can just, you know, throw up our hands and say, well, just let everything be on there and people can figure it out for themselves that that causes massive amounts of harm, I think. So I, I do think that we're going to have to accept some kind of compromise position where certain, you know, certain individuals, certain behaviors, certain things are not going to be allowed in those kind of public forums, if we want to, I mean, otherwise, like if we don't do that, we're just going to keep getting uh, this spiral into these this world of of misinformation, where you know, like the very concept of truth has been undermined. So I, I don't think that we can avoid this just by saying, you know, in on a long enough timeline, truth will win out or something like that. I don't think there's a good there's a good reason to think that it will in this current environment. Yeah, I have to disagree. I think they should just allow everything to be on there. Um, even though, as I think my example shows, I know exactly how how dangerous that also is. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't feel that um, Silicon Valley tycoons or Mark Zuckerberg or um, the Pakistan government, which has asked Facebook to ban atheist groups, for example, and humanist groups from there from their platform, and I think they have obliged. I um, I don't think Trump's government, um, I, I, there's nobody I trust to, to make that selection. So I think that the, the only answer is, is on an individual level to try to just keep being responsible each as individuals, because I don't think that that responsibility can be delegated. There's nobody I trust to delegate it to, frankly. 
So, I mean, this argument to me seems overly broad in the sense that it undermines all laws, right? Because, like, I hear this all the time when I argue about ethics. Like, oh, well, if we're going to have objective morality, who gets to decide what's right and wrong? And, like, because we can't all agree on who gets to decide, we shouldn't have it. Oh, um, and yeah, I think, but it, this, is not, like, this is not all morality. This is just whether you have freedom of speech on Facebook or not. Well, what I'm saying is your same argument applies to everything, right? Who gets to decide the difference between murder and a justified honor killing, for example, or some, I, I know I think there's an objective, like, I think that honor killings are murder, um, but some people are going to say, well, that's morally justified on my cultural view, and who are you to say otherwise? And like, you know, we can't have any kind of resolution to this disagreement, whereas I think no, we actually do have to get to a resolution of some sort. It's not going to be one that everyone is going to like. But look, we have laws in our society for a reason. It's because letting individuals work it out doesn't work. And there are these collective action problems and there are collective obstacles that we face. And I, I don't think that we can just like, you know, a lot of people don't have the tools to wade through a bunch of misinformation and figure out what things are true and what things aren't. And and yes, there is a risk of abuse that comes with having, but like we have editorial boards for a reason, right? We don't just print literally everything in the newspaper. We have standards and those standards can maybe sometimes get in the way of, you know, getting information out as fast as possible or something like that. But I think it's important to have those standards. And I don't, I, I like, I've I've been in parts of the internet where those standards don't exist, and it's it's a nightmare world. Of course, but I do think that Facebook is not a publisher; it's not a newspaper, and I think that it's much more analogous to the telephone service or email. Um, we don't listen to people's phone calls and try to decide what they can and can't say. I mean, th that would be true if the algorithms didn't exist, for example. But like. Facebook is not just a way, you know, it's not just Skype where like you, I call you or you call me or something. It's a system whereby certain kinds of information get more, get propped up and other ones don't. And it's not like, it's not a, it's not a pure platform in the kind of way that they want it to be. And even if it was like, you know, we, we, we don't allow people to publish certain things in major newspapers or something like that. We do limit in major newspapers, but but we do allow them to publish and i feel that i feel that facebook and twitter are more like just uh, i i don't feel that there's an analogy between twitter and a major newspaper i don't think that we are that we can possibly or should be selecting exactly what is and isn't on on twitter or on Facebook, you can curate obviously your own experience, but I don't think we should, I don't feel it's a publication with fact-checking standards of that kind. Um, and I don't think it can be. I think it's... I, I think that it should be, is what I'm saying. I think that it should be treated as that because the social harms of not treating it that way are substantial. And I think that we agree on in a lot of cases. I think you would agree that like people shouldn't be putting child right, pornography so on Twitter or something like that. It's not right. You know, there that, are a few that's a specific that we can easily things. solve. I would say credible threats of violence, doxing, child pornography, and also um, uh, things that are definite fraud and misrepresentation. So I can't go on Twitter advertising my services mm -hmm. as a dentist and, you know, come over and I'll take out, I'll deal with your root canal 
you know, me, Dr. Iona Italia. <laughs> my doctorate is in 18th century literature, but I won't, you know, I will, mm -hmm. I'll pretend it's in medicine. Um, you know, so I think that there obviously should be, there are some limits to what you can, should be allowed to say, but I would set those limits as narrowly as possible. I think we all agree to set them as narrowly as possible. We just disagree about how what that is in terms of narrowness. Like, you know, Alex Jones, for example. I I think that it's better not it's, to have Alex Jones on Twitter. Others would argue that, like, his behavior doesn't rise to um, a level of he's being He's a bit removed. of a fringe case because of the Sandy Hook um, truther things. I think that verged uh -huh. on being something that I would consider to be legally fraud, um, and, what about and Holocaust denial? Holocaust denial, I think, should be on there. Holocaust really? denial is an opinion. It's not uh, the Sandy I mean, Hook so thing was Sandy really. Is, I mean, well, uh, the Sandy Hook thing was opinion, but it was also publishing people's addresses. It was really there was. I would say that the Sandy Hook thing there was kind of more like direct, credible incitement to violence there, um, but. It's it's a it's a fringe case. Um, I would I would I would probably keep even Alex Jones, and yeah, I would definitely keep Holocaust denialists and every other kind of really horrifying and awful opinion. Um, and I do think that. I mean, I I I I I do think that it's not a newspaper. It's different when so. Um, I mean, I'm obviously um, an editor, of an, I am an editor of a periodical, and I have a podcast, as do you. Um, and I do make choices, we do make choices about what we publish in ARIO. And we certainly publish a lot of stuff, a lot of opinions that we disagree with, but no opinion that we think is not worth hearing. Um, I think we publish about 10% 10, 10 of submissions. So there's quite there's quite a lot of of um, there's quite a lot of selection going on. So far, we have we have published absolutely not we've published almost nothing on race issues um, because we are kind of super cautious and not because we're afraid of being getting criticism, but because I am uh, well we're both quite sensitive to anything that might be this mystification and fetishization of race ideas mm -hmm. um, because that uh, we feel that that contradicts the liberal humanist universal liberal humanist views that we would like to, the paper to be um, espousing but we do publish for example recently a libertarian article and I couldn't disagree more with everything that is said in that article um, I kind of despise libertarianism Political political libertarianism, not the free will kind. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there is nothing wrong with expressing that opinion, and it's one that's put in a perfectly. It's one that deserves to be out there and hurt, and I'm fine with it being out there and hurt. And I think that, and the same with the podcast. So there are quite a few people who I haven't had on the podcast because I don't know enough about them, and I'm not certain I want to give them a platform. 
Uh-huh. Um, and I don't have to, I, if I don't have time to research, then I err on the side of no. Um, I was very, I was very cautious about having Eric Kaufman on and um, I would never have had him on without first reading White Shift. I read it and I thought it was, he was a reasonable person to have on. I haven't researched his entire life, for example, but that's probably the closest I got to someone where I thought, I'm not sure if I want to give this person a platform. And in the end, I decided that I did. But I'm re- I'm super cautious about who I give airtime to. But but I am not, um, if you don't publish in ARIO, there are a thousand other places you can publish. There are a thousand other po- podcasts you can go on. By not specifically giving you a, a stake in that, I'm not silencing anybody. But I feel that if they are cut off from social media, they are effectively silenced in the public square. So, and me, that's where I'm going to draw the line. I yeah. mean, so I hear two sides of this, and I feel like they're inconsistent. Um, on the one hand, I hear, you know, if you cut people off from Facebook and social media, they're going to go to Gab or something like that, and they're going to become more powerful, right? If you strike them down, they become somehow more no, powerful. No, I don't, in the I don't think I don't think they will. I don't think they will but, become but more what I, powerful. What I'm, saying, what I'm saying is a lot of folks... I think they'll be more obscure, actually. I know. You know I'm, I'm I think it explain. does work. I'm trying to explain why. I, sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, it's yeah. okay. I'm just trying I, to explain that to ahead. me that, like, free speech advocates often make this argument in inconsistent ways. Sometimes they will say, if somebody gets thrown off of Facebook, they don't have some other place to go. Whereas sometimes other people will argue if they get thrown off Facebook, the place they'll go to next will become worse because it won't be a place where they can be challenged in some kind of way. I I lean to the side of like, Look, you know, Alex Jones got kicked off of Twitter. He still has a following. He still makes money. He probably makes less than he did before. He's not completely prevented from using the internet in some kind of way. Um, and it, it seems to me that, you know, just like if you at Letters, right, you folks over at Letters Wiki decided that you didn't want to publish a discourse, a, a dialogue about you know, some people arguing about white nationalism or something. I'm not saying that you would or you wouldn't do that, but I do think that it's within your right to say, you know, we're trying to cultivate a certain community here and we feel like if we, you know, use this material, it would um, harm that community in some kind of way. It seems just as true for me, reasonable for me, if Twitter wanted to say, look, you know, we're trying to make Twitter less Twitter. We all know that Twitter is a dumpster fire and we're trying to turn down the dumpster fire a little bit. And to do that, we have to remove a bunch of bots who are going around abusing people and we have to remove certain high profile instigators of dog piles and abuse or something like that. And I think they could make a very reasonable case that like nothing is lost from the value of the discourse by removing those bad actors Mm. in that kind of way. Because, you know, people who are good actors and who want to make those arguments will make them in better ways in the absence of those sort of more abusive instigators. So, yeah. Right. Um, So um, two things. First of all, that the idea that that, uh, if you throw people off Twitter and Facebook, um, I th- it's definitely true that if you throw somebody off um, social media and if you expel them from kind of polite discourse, mm-hmm. civil discourse, because of their 
horrendous views that that makes them more likely to get entrenched into an echo chamber and it makes de-radicalization work more difficult. And I know this directly from, so now I'm not talking about the Alex Joneses and the prominent and the Richard Spencers, the spokespeople. I'm talking about people who've been caught up in those, um, in those ideologies. Mm-hmm. And I do know, um, so my friend Gurwinder Bogal um, had the experience of trying to re- de-radicalize um, a white nationalist girl who was on Twitter, who was mess- who he was in, in a kind of long de-private um, message exchange with. And he was beginning to sort of shift her mind and plant doubts, and it was beginning to work, and then Twitter banned her. And, you know, so now she's probably on Gab or wherever, entrenched in her ideology. So one thing is that it makes de-radicalization work much more difficult. Uh, when you when you take people who may be wavering and you just expel them from the place where good influences are going to happen. Yeah. But I don't think that it, I don't really buy the martyrdom thing. So everybody said don't punch Richard Spencer because then people will feel sorry for him, etc. Nobody feels sorry for him. He was punched. Did it make him any more popular? I think quite the opposite. I don't think people feel kind of, I don't think Alex Jones has become a hero or martyr for being um, thrown off Twitter. And I think people like Laura Loomer, you know, they might get a little bit of publicity at first because of the ban. And then afterwards, they're going to just dis- descend into well-deserved obscurity. Yeah, I tend to agree. And of course, I of course I don't feel. Of course, Twitter is a better place without Laura Loomer, and it's an even better place without um, without Alex Jones. But I would still, I tend to prefer a few guilty people to go free, so that we're not punishing innocent people. I prefer Twitter with Alex Jones on it, and which also has um, the Pakistani atheist group, um, who are, you know, one of the most. This is one of the most oppressed, um, most oppressed groups of people in the world, and they don't have free speech in their country. They have Twitter as the place where they're able to communicate with the world, and Twitter has thrown them off. I don't like to see Sanjay Hegde. Um, Sanju Vacha, I don't know if you saw him. I don't think you follow Indian politics as much, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. he is a Supreme Court judge in India. He's been an, a champion of minorities in India. He's an outspoken opponent of the Modi government. He is a, a really impeccable um, liberal humanist. He had, you know, a, camp- uh, a campaign of of Hindu nationalist trolls mass mass reporting him and he's been suspended from Twitter. Um I would rather I would rather Alex Jones were there and also Sanjay Hegde. I will take them both as a package rather than neither of them. So it's not that I don't uh, I don't understand the trade-offs, but to me the trade-offs are still remain worth it. I still prefer to have everybody um, unless they do something illegal of the the things that I that we specified earlier, I still want everybody to be able to be on the platform. That's my that is my choice. You can also, if you don't want to hear Alex Jones, you can also mute. You can block Alex Jones. I'm not saying he doesn't do damage. He still does damage. 
he talks a load of bullshit and maybe some people even believe him. In Alex Jones's case, I think people mostly follow be- for a kind of entertainment value and to tr- to troll him and stuff because he's so obviously ludicrous. But some people are more much more specious than that. And um there are a lot of extremely there are a lot of extremely nasty uh Indian nationalists on the platform, blue tick um people with large followings. There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of toxicity and un, uh, horrible and kind of dangerous ideas floating around, but I still, on balance, prefer that this this has become the main public square, and I, on balance, still want it free. Yeah, I mean, look, as as an ethicist, I understand there there are irreducible competing values at play mm. here, mm. and so we're going to err on one side or the other, as it were. Um, and I understand erring on the side of, uh, of free speech. I don't, I don't think we have to go so far as to say that erring on the side of free speech means the level of unfettered speech that you're talking about. Because I, th- I do think that we can draw. Like, I don't think it's really an either or quite as much as you're describing. I think there will be, there will always be hard cases but i think we can you know it's not always a slippery slope immediately so i do think that we have to do the work of making sort of more fine-grained distinctions and i think it's it's hard to do that work when it feels like anyone who tries to do that work immediately gets accused of wanting to censor everyone or limit speech in some inappropriate kind of way like it feels like there's not a lot of room that folks make for a conceptual space where people can reasonably say, you know, I think this person's speech is causing so much harm and producing so little, so little good that like there, there is reason for not including them in this community. I, I don't think that's, I don't feel that Twitter is that kind of community where I should be able to decide or you should be able to decide or anyone should be able to decide who causes harm and who doesn't cause harm. That's that's my issue. Um, because if it's sheer numbers, um, well, you should read Rohit Gupta's book, The Virtual Hindu, Hindu Rashtra, because the BJP have understood that Twitter will respond to sheer numbers of people reporting accounts. And so they are paying trolls to go around mass reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, this mm-hmm. is... It's not a conspiracy Yeah, no, I think we, need a, we need a, clearly need a more sophisticated right, right. system than that. Right. No, I'm not saying that, like, it should literally just be mob rule or something like that. And I think the mechanism can be more sophisticated than that. And again, I I think this is a very hard problem. And I don't think there is an easy answer that, that cleanly will carve reality at the joint in this kind of way. I just think that if we if we just abdicate addressing the problem we we shift a lot of the harm onto people who then have to like spend all of their time on social media blocking people who are being abusive or choose they to lock just, their account or not be part right. of the community. And they so, can I mean, like, just switch, like, switch their notifications to people I follow only, and that's it. And that's I don't. Mechanism. I mean, that's a good thing that they that, that Twitter added that particular feature. I just we have, we have to be careful when we when we look for solutions to problems. Are we just heaping more responsibility onto the people who are already being harmed by a situation, rather than creating a system that assigns more responsibility to the people who are causing the harm? 
Right. So I don't think that this system is assigning any responsibility to the people who are causing the harm. I think it's just banning people from the platform at kind of random, some good people, some bad people, possibly in more or less equal measure. Um, and I don't, I find that very dissatisfying. Um, I mean, there's no, there's, I also think that the, it's not that I deny that that speech is, even if there's no um, real world consequences, quote unquote, it's not that I deny that speech can be powerful and hurtful and upsetting and horrible to hear. But I also don't think that, I don't think that the upset of somebody being nasty to you on Twitter can outweigh the basic value of having a free speech platform for everybody. I just don't, I don't think it can. And when you were talking about polite, um, so tone policing earlier, you said there are some people who um, you can speak politely because you're not kind of personally damaged by um, by any of the opinions going around. And I disagree with that. I mean, I don't feel, I have some quite nasty opinion. I, I encounter some quite nasty opinions um, from the Hindu right who are very well organized. They have lots of lists of Twitter accounts of Indian liberals, etc. Um, and especially after I wrote for India Today, um, I got kind of on people's radar, even though my account is teeny tiny. So I do have some, they're most, I have me, uh, uh, like hundreds of them blocked. And um, I hear all kinds of stuff from them. And I don't feel like because I'm a Parsi, I can't listen to certain things. I can't hear certain things. I can't like, um, you know, if somebody sends me uh a picture of a of a dog being tortured or something because I'm a Parsi. I can't I can't deal with that, um, and therefore we need to put protections in place. Or if somebody is making an argument about um, Hindu ethno nationalism, I can't listen to that argument because that argument is and because I'm from a minor Indian minority group. I or you know if somebody is m making a an argument about whether or not women prefer, whether or not women should, um, I don't know, some extreme argument like Jordan Peterson's thing about women wearing lipstick in the workplace, mm -hmm. which I thought was just kind of ludicrous. And I don't want to go into it in depth because I actually analyzed this in an earlier podcast with uh, William Buckley and Cody Moser. We did a sort of evolutionary psychology take on Jordan Peterson and my guests were not impressed. Um, but I don't I don't feel like because I'm a woman, I must be protected from hearing that or I can't respond to that rationally and politely. If I can't respond rationally and politely, um, that may be because I'm an emotional person. This is an emotive subject for me and there's no reason to judge me. But I don't think you have to therefore silence people in my presence. I think that's that's too much. So, I mean, what I hear you saying a lot is you don't need this protection for yourself, which fair enough, you don't. And so other people 
either, you know, shouldn't need it or like you would prefer, I mean, like I get that you would prefer radical freedom in the sense of just letting everyone sort of say these things because you can, you feel like you can process it functionally. And I just think that there's a common move people make that they think, well, therefore everyone should be able to do that. And people who aren't able to do that, you know, tough in some kind of way, um, where I think, um, well, I, in some kind of way, tough. I mean, I think that they should not be forced to listen. Nobody should be forced to debate. If your university club is hosting somebody who who's you don't want to hear, you shouldn't have to go. I approve of trigger warnings. I approve of safe spaces. Unlike you know many mm-hmm. of my like in my adjacency group, mm-hmm. um, because that is that is about your choice of what you wish to li- hear and what what discussions you wish to take part in i think sometimes it can it it can and should have consequences if for example you are uh doing a law degree and you won't go and you want to be uh an advocate for women but you won't go to any of the talks on rape law because it would be too upsetting i think there might be some fringe cases like that edge cases where you have to either choose to deal with a thing or or not do your professional work. But mostly, mostly I think you should be able to always opt out. Free speech includes the freedom not to hear. It's very important that you can curate your own Twitter experience. I don't like this kind of way in which some people see having been blocked as some kind of victory. Um, no, everybody should block whoever they wish for whatever reason they wish, however frivolous. Um, you know, you can block me because you don't like people with freckles. It it doesn't matter. It's your it's your account. But what you shouldn't do is prevent other people. From you have an ironically very libertarian approach to all of this. You know that, right? <laughs> well, like it's funny that like <laughs> I know, but like it's funny that your your takes about this are sort of very much the idea of, of sort of personal responsibility and personal freedom. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm sympathetic to those things, but I do think that they, un, they, they sort of ignore the systemic side of this and they ignore the cost. I mean, I'm not saying you ignore, I, sorry, I apologize. You, you have fully admitted that there are, there are costs to this. I just, there are, there are costs, it, but, it seems, but yeah. the costs for me are way outweighed by the freedom. Um, you know, there are people who are in, offended by what I have to say. There are people who are offended by what you have to say. Um, should they therefore be able to stop us from speaking or stop other people from listening? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with no. Um, I think sometimes yes. I mean, like, so, so let's let's take the N word for an example, right? Like, oh, this came up in my in my free speech class because, like, my students were sort of strongly against cancel culture when we discussed this in class, but at the same time, they would try to have me fired if I used the N word repeatedly in class. And like, I don't think that I can make a reasonable case for how anyone would be benefited by me being allowed to use that word in that context. You could argue, well, look, if they don't like it, they can just go take a different class with a different teacher or something. But I don't think that's an answer to the problem. I think it's I think it's very clear that we are better off having a policy where we're like, I can't do that or I can't, you know, casually, you know, refer to my students by the F word or something like that. Well, if you're insulting your students, then that's one thing. 
Or if uh, I just use these words casually in context, you know, in class for no reason or something, or I use them because I want to, you know, surprise and shock people so that they'll stay awake or well, something that, like you that. See, like, I, well, I, uh, if you want to say them at random to shock them, I, I, I tend to think you should be able to actually. Um, I can't imagine that seems like a too ludicrous a situation, so I can't quite get my head I, I around think that causes, it. But, I mean, the th- but like the, the harm caused would be so so substantial as compared to like the tiny benefits. I I don't think much harm would be caused. I mean, I think that the har- harm is caused by by using these words as slurs and attacks. But I don't think any harm is caused by reading a a a, a passage from Huckleberry Finn which has the N word in it. I mean, if I were back in university, I would not. Not the example that I was talking right, about, but though. that, like I, but that I, yeah. has been. I mean, the 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 examples where people have been, some of the examples where people have been disciplined and even fired for using the N word. And one was a guy who was using it in a linguistics talk, and he was an African American guy. Um, and he was talking about the phenomenon of the word. I mean, this this also, you know, the teenage girl who was invited on stage by the rapper and um, he asked her to sing along with him and she sang along with him and she said the N-word, which was in his song, and then he shamed her in front of his million fans. That just, those kinds of examples just seem to me ludicrous. How is this, how is this word, the word doesn't in itself have some kind of talismanic power. And when I say that, people think this is because I want to say the word. No, I'm going to make a point of never, ever uttering that word, because um, I I don't really give a shit about the word itself. But I think it's, I find that this principle that saying, act, that just pronouncing an actual word in itself causes harm without context is just bizarre. Um, and I don't, so I don't call people. I, I, gonna, I don't think it's, yeah, I, I guess I, 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 I don't think it's hard to say that it's bizarre. Like, I, I think you can say you don't experience that harm personally, but I don't think no, there's but, anything uh, wrong but most with the of idea. My, like, but, but plenty of black people also don't experience that harm personally. Um, Ralph Leonard recently said that he, he thinks it's the, it's one of the most important words to use if you're talking about American history and that you can't. Um, if you're sure. teaching history, you should actually use the word because you need to, um, otherwise you are glossing over and euphemizing um, the uh, the facts of history, the truth of the past. Um, and I, So this was why yeah. at the beginning I, I tried very hard to say, I think there are different contexts for talking about speech. And I think there are some contexts where you could justify saying the N-word, but that's but that, you know, and and that's to sort of preempt this idea that when we get to this conversation about when you shouldn't say it, right, the pulling out of those particular circumstances can't undermine this fact of the matter that, like, broadly speaking, I shouldn't be wandering around, you know, my university. Like, uh, like take another example, like, um, you know, we used to always call things gay, right? That bad mm-hmm. thing is gay. This is gay. That's gay, right? You're not necessarily calling a person gay, but you are still reinforcing in people's minds that this thing is associated with something negative. And so I do think there are ways that you can mm-hmm. use language I mean, that cause harm. I wasn't part of that generation, um, mm-hmm. So I never, I never had that habit, um, but I, 
I, you know, I certainly know gay men who, who say this. And I just, in context, I don't think anything of it. Um, and I just, I also, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call somebody faggot. I think that word I can say, so I'm going to say that word, okay? Um, I wouldn't call somebody a faggot as like an insult or a slur or something. That would be kind of ridiculous. Um, but the reason I wouldn't call them that is not because of the word. It's because of the thing. It's because I don't, I don't find it insult. I don't feel like it's kind of insulting so, to refer to somebody as gay because I don't see any problem with being gay. But I use it in a, so some of my gay friends use it and all, and I use it in a sonnet once. So I wrote a sonnet to a gay friend of mine and I use this word, um, and because it fitted, it was alliterative, and it worked in the context. Um, it was the right choice of word for this context. And in context, it was entirely complimentary. I mean, so, so yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't really. Here's why I think we're talking past each other a little bit here. I feel like I'm, I'm bringing up harms that people say that they experience and your your responses have consistently been i don't personally experience this harm and i i can present cases where there wasn't a harm caused by doing this thing and, and those things are both true but i don't think they they, they have any bearing I, and so like i would ask you know yes you're not bothered by this kind of words or you are bothered. well i wouldn't say i'm not bothered i wouldn't harm. say i'm not bothered what i think is that I'm trying, to, I'm trying to ask if you can put yourself in the mindset of someone who is harmed or bothered by these things like can you can you step away from your own place and say if i were in that person's mm -hmm. place can i really understand why they are experiencing harm i would i um i would dispute that they're experiencing harm that, that seems problematic to um, me. i would strongly yeah. dispute it and i Okay, I'm going to give you an example, okay? I'm going to give you an, a better okay. example. So um, <laughs> so I recently wrote on Letter. I had a letter exchange um, with this guy called Nick Cano. Who, so Nick Cano wrote to me and he wanted to have a correspondence on the topic of um, younger men and older women. Mm -hmm. And... So, and he wrote me an extremely, um, like, radically frank and personal letter. And I will link to it in the, in the show notes. And so I wanted to respond to him in, as in an equally frank way. So I did. I wrote a very frank letter to him. And I posted it on Twitter. Most people are very positive. But I had a couple of people this one guy who wrote 16 tweets about it, and all his tweets were basically, I'm looking at your profile picture. You are so incredibly ugly that there is no way any man who is reasonably attractive would ever voluntarily sleep with you. So you must have either paid, paid him, because I was talking about an, a younger boyfriend in my letter to Nick, okay? in the spirit of sort of disclosure and frankness that in which we were writing. And he said, there's absolutely no way. So you must have either paid him or um, you must have somehow blackmailed him or sexually assaulted him or something because you're really, really disgusting to look at and no attractive man would ever voluntarily have sex with you. 
Um, you know, it was like 16 tweets basically all saying this. Uh-huh. Um, and he he also kept answering the other people in my mentions when other people were like, dude, chill out. He was like, but it's true, isn't it? And they said, no, no. And he said, you're just saying that to be polite, but you really know when you look at her picture, just look, doesn't it make you want to vomit? She is so disgustingly ugly. Um, and, you know, of course, I feel bothered by that and hurt. Um, I wasn't so super hurt in this case because it was one person. But even though it was one completely random person, I was hurt, I was bothered. But was I harmed? And was I harmed enough that we need to, you know, prevent free speech from being possible on Twitter? No, (laughs) that's my that's my contention. Um, And I do think that there there are, it is possible, people's experiences differ, but it is possible to set, to set more objective levels of harm. To say, well, I am particularly, I really dislike being tickled, so I'm harmed by being tickled just as much as you would be harmed by being stabbed in the stomach. That is not, there's a point at which this is not, that's kind of a just not viable. Comparison, though. <laughs> Like that's, it's a very okay. Fair enough. But I mean, like, um, what I'm trying to get you to do is to say you said that you felt you were hurt, but not harmed. I was hurt. Okay. Yeah, I was not so, harmed. I would argue that you probably did experience more harm there than maybe you're just sort of letting on to some extent, in the sense that it it is it is a damage to your self esteem potentially. But even if it's not right, let's assume for the sake of argument that like you are completely 100 percent not harmed in that situation. I have no problem. No, I mean I I am a, I am I a little bit damaged because obviously I part of me is like maybe he's right, you know. <laughs> Although I know that I didn't pay my ex-boyfriend and what I'm, what I'm nevertheless is, you know that, yeah. yes what, what go I'm ahead is a less yeah. prepossessing person could be very severely harmed by that could you know consider you know causing further physical self-harm to themselves as a response to that kind of behavior and there's zero value in letting that asshole be on twitter harassing women in that kind of way so like i so i guess i'm just trying to say you know Part of the fret- the fetishizing of free speech, I think, is a fetishizing of, well, I wasn't harmed by that, no matter how horrible you or, you know, I was only harmed a little bit, but not enough that I want to justify limiting your speech. Whereas I think it's OK to say, look, if this person, you know, like if I'm if I'm going around just calling a bunch of people the N word, fire me. That's OK. Or like, you know, if I'm on Twitter just being abusive to people all the time and producing, you know, contributing nothing to the conversation, like I don't think there's a benefit in letting that person stick around. And I think there's a lot of substantial harm. So, yeah, I'm just I, 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 I well, there's no benefit in the problem is the sieve. The problem is the filter. I mean, if I could rule the world, or even if you could, you're very—you seem like a very lovely person, and I would probably trust you to take this asshole off Twitter and leave Sanjay Hector on there. But I don't trust Zuckerberg. I don't trust a bunch of algorithms. I don't trust a mob reporting system. I don't trust—you know—the people who I knew, a couple of people who I knew who are banned from Twitter, perma banned. One was banned because he was um, he was joking around, joshing around with a male friend of his on Twitter, mm-hmm. and I don't remember what exactly was said. It was there was it wasn't the N word. It wasn't faggot. It wasn't any kind of obvious slur. But 
I don't know, he said something really rude to the guy, but it was it was it wasn't even rude in context. It was a joke. They were joking with each other and he was banned. Um and he was, you know, one of my favorite people to interact with. Um my friend Inas, um, who is um a young UN representative who is a really strong liberal voice. She was perma banned from Twitter. She was banned from Twitter. She wasn't permanently banned. So she has a new account now. But she was banned because there was a picture of chocolate chip hummus. And she wrote this tweet about how how the people who had made this hummus should be um, hung, drawn and quartered and tortured to death and executed or something. You know, it was such a ridiculous hyperbole. Yeah. Um, and it was exactly the kind of joke that I would have made. You know, this this deserves the death penalty, putting chocolate chips into hummus. Um, and be, she's Iraqi. So, I mean, I think that she has a right to feel especially aggrieved, <laughs> chocolate chips and hummus. That Those people are gone from Twitter at the same time as this guy is gone. This is why I don't, there's no there may be no value in having him on Twitter. Who knows? There may be value. Maybe later, encountering enough people who tell him he's an asshole, maybe later he will rethink. Yeah, so I mean, like, I maybe started it's better that... he's on. But, but, but I, I just, I won't, I won't, I, I won't have him taken off plus the people I like. I just don't think it's an either or in that kind of way. And I think this is the reason that we're in the situation is because Twitter and Facebook have refused to address the problem in a more functional way, which would be to hire editors. They can't. They can. They can hire actual human beings. Look, journals do that. Like newspapers do this all the time. We don't. It's not that we don't have an ability to do this. It's that they don't want to do it because they know that they will lose customers if they do it. But that is not the same as it being physically impossible for us to find some way to distinguish between the good actors and the bad actors in terms of which things we allow to be published. I know that you don't think that they should be treated that way, that you should think they, they shouldn't be viewed as publications. But no. I'm saying, look, the argument I don't trust people is the exact same argument that people use for saying I can dismiss large swaths of the media because it's edited by liberals and liberals are hiding the truth in some kind of way. But that's not a reason to get rid of editors. And that seems to be where your argument lands. And I don't think that's the right solution. Well, I, I think that the the... Well, you feel the analogy is a is a newspaper, and I feel the analogy is the telephone. I feel like Twitter is like being on the phone. But I'm saying the the problem is the problem is a problem of censorship, and censorship can be solved by having good editors. So that that's why the analogy mm, is important. I I disagree because I don't think not being published in Ario is censorship, but I do because there. There is, there are alternatives, but I don't think there's any effective alternative to Twitter, especially for Indians, especially for Indian journalists. I think there's no effective, no effective alternative for them, and um, so I feel it's it. It would be like saying, well, we could hire people to listen into phone calls to make sure nobody is saying any ins anything and insulting or misleading or damaging or hurting people's feelings when they talk to them on the phone. Well, people don't talk to each other on the phone <laughs> anymore, uh, by and large, but if they did, or we can like monitor their WhatsApp conversations. So the Indian government could decide, well, given what happened with this, with these three guys who were killed, we're now going to pre-censor everybody's WhatsApp conversations. 
and somebody will read your WhatsApp message and say you're allowed to send this message or not. That to me is so weird. We differ. There's a difference though between private conversations and public behavior. I mean, like, I don't think people should be listening in on people's private chats, but like, I do think that like, if you are posting hate speech on Twitter, that's different than DMing hate speech to someone. Um, yeah, I think it's not as bad. But I think it's also it's also something that we can restrict, right? I'm not saying that we should prevent people from, like, messaging each other in any format on the internet. What I'm saying is in public forums, we can limit certain kinds of abuse. But what, what is abuse? I mean, I mean if you sit really in the middle of a... If you the Pakistani the of the government camp, feels it's abuse to be an atheist. I, I so. know, but this, this just goes back to the, like, how do we distinguish things? And, like, we can make some distinctions. If you stand in the middle of my campus and shout fag at everyone who walks past you, I would like you to be removed from my campus. I do not believe that there is a value in letting you stand there and berate students for, you know, speech purposes or something like that. If you want to stand there and have a civil conversation about why you think gay people are going to hell then then like maybe we can have a different discussion but like this you know like like i said civility is a double-edged sword and I, I do think there are situations in which we should expect a certain level of decorum i think y'all's website wiki letter wiki is valuable because it promotes a higher level of discourse and if someone came onto that site and started degrading the quality of that discourse i would think you'd be well within your rights to restrict that behavior and i don't think that that would change if there were 30 million people on letter instead of you know however many people there are currently on it gosh i hope that there will be 30 million people on letter <laughs> i know <laughs> and like when i was talking to clive clive uh, clive on my show about this like he was concerned about scaling up and the risk of diluting the quality as you scale up mm -hmm. and so you know i think that it is hard to do that and it is you know that when you put when you put a bunch of people in a space like you have on facebook or twitter you get lower quality engagement so like there are there are all of these tensions but i i just don't think that the answer to the tensions is take a completely laissez-faire approach mm, i think it is but we'll have to yeah. we will have to agree to disagree on this i'm sure okay. we'll agree on all the on all the specific examples but i think we'll disagree on the general policy because unfortunately we don't run the world and i really wish we did I don't want to I run think, the world. I want to just help people learn ethics. Um, right. I mean, I don't want to either. It seems like a real pain in the ass. Um, yeah. But I'm sure we would do a better job than the people currently in charge. But like, I would uh, rather I would rather break up Facebook. I think you know, in some kind of way, it make you know, like if if the problem is really this is the only option and people have no other options, then I think we should be providing alternative options rather than saying we're just going to let this be a free-for-all or something like that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think there could be a kind of safe space, Facebook and Twitter <laughs> thing, um, which which had stricter rules. Um, and then people could vote with their feet. True. Um, so, yeah, I guess I, I have some libertarian tendencies. In mm -hmm. this regard, mm -hmm. despite the fact that I despise Ayn Rand with a burning passion. Well, now um, we agree. That's fine. Okay, that's good. I think maybe that would be a good place to to bring this quite long podcast to a close. Sure. <laughs> the point of agreement. Sounds good. Um, is there anything you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? 
you know, my my position on things is it's complicated a lot of the time. And I think I I, I worry that sometimes it's hard. Sometimes people want to overcomplicate things. People want to undercomplicate them. And they're, it's very hard to find the sweet spot. And so, so when I say that things are complicated, I don't mean there is no um, fact of the matter necessarily one way or the other on certain issues. So I think that sometimes that can be the way that that is taken. Things are too hard that we just shouldn't shouldn't think that there's a resolution to be had here. I do think that there can be resolutions. I do think that they are very complicated. And so I think people should be skeptical of narratives that seem to oversimplify things in any direction. So maybe that's maybe I'll leave it there, I suppose. Okay, Aaron, I'm so I'm kind of like um, disproportionately happy and a little even emotional that you came on the podcast because it just feels sort of redemptive to me because of the horrible Twitter fight we had. So I I kind of especially thank you. I'm really um, touched by your graciousness and forgiving me for being such a idiot before. And thank you for being such a wonderful guest. No, no problem. My pleasure. It was happy. I was happy to come on. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.